Welcome to Carbon Times. Following the success of Series 1 in 2021, we are kicking off 2022 with Series 2. In this series, we are talking about the decarbonisation of domestic homes. With around 25 million domestic homes in the UK, it is no small challenge. We will be talking to industry specialists, the regulators, people that can drive the agenda forward and homeowners making the transition. Thank you for continuing to listen as we pull together people from across the industry to keep the conversation going. Our continued aim being to get the industry talking. We all have a responsibility to drive the decarbonisation of the places and the spaces we use. Analysis by both the CCC and the Office for Budget Responsibility has shown that decarbonising homes is one of the trickiest areas of the net zero challenge. There are going to be substantial upfront costs and fewer long-term savings than can be found in other sectors, such as transport or electricity production. But there are potential benefits here. Changing how we heat our homes could not only help us hit the net zero target, but also make them more resilient and more comfortable to live in. But doing this is going to require a substantial investment in infrastructure, both physical, such as transmission grids, heat pumps, heat networks and the like, but also investment in skills, technology and business models which enable this transition. Welcome back to the Carbon Times podcast. This is episode two of series two. In series two, we're concentrating on the decarbonisation of domestic homes in the UK. We're delighted to be joined by two people from Elmhurst Energy today. Elmhurst Energy being one of the leading accrediting bodies in the UK. So we're joined today by Jason Hewins. Hi, Jason. Would you just introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background? Sure, yeah. Jason Hewins from Elmhurst Energy. I'm the New Build Dwellings Manager at Elmhurst. I've been at Elmhurst since 2008 um, in various different positions. And my main responsibilities are overseeing what we call our on-construction support team. So supporting energy assessors, doing energy assessments on new build homes for building regulation compliance and also producing energy performance certificates on completion as well. Excellent. Thank you very much. And then we are also joined by Jonathan Bork. Hi. Good afternoon, Paul. I'm Jonathan Burke. I'm the area manager for Elmhurst for Scotland and Northern Ireland. I'm within the commercial team at Elmhurst and my job mainly consists of assisting existing Elmhurst members and new member firms to maximise any and all opportunity out there within this space as we all continue our quest towards achieving net zero. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. So we thought it would be a good idea, being as the subject is so close to many different aspects of regulation and aspects that you guys are dealing with on a daily basis, that we thought it would be good as part of this series and part of the discussions around the domestic market to really dig into how regulation is being led towards the net zero journey and also how it's helping and aiding people to make the right decisions. So Jason, if we could start with you, I'm sure most of our listeners are very aware that the UK has released a new requirements for Part L documentation. So I guess, first of all, if you could just give us a little bit of, you know, a couple of sentences around what Part L, just to fill in the gaps for anyone um, that doesn't know what it is, and then, you know, give us a little bit of an overview of what the new requirements are. Okay, so Part L is the section of the building regulations in 
England and Wales, actually, known as Parl, which is titled Conservation of Fuel and Power, which, as the name suggests, is all about reducing our fuel usage, power usage, and therefore carbon emissions in homes. Well, buildings, I should say, because there's a non-domestic side to it as well, of course. But yeah, but it sits in as many of is along with many of the approved documents in terms of building regulations that new homes have to meet. That's a good statement there, isn't it? So new homes have to meet it. So <laughs> the fact that they've brought out new updated version, what's the thought process, do you feel, behind bringing out a new and revised version at this time? Yeah, so there's a few things at play here that have led us to this point to look to bring out a new version. So we've not actually had the pile updates for nine years now. So it's been a long time coming. There was supposed to be one in 2016, but unfortunately, for various different reasons, it, it never happened. So we've been sat on Part L 2013 for almost, like I said, coming up to nine years. Having said that, the world has changed a lot since then, of course. You know, there's much more focus on energy efficiency in the news now. I mean, just look at the recent COP26 and all of the, the media coverage that got. So we live in a different world. There's a lot more pressure on government to take a lead and, and start to take action in this space. And clearly they haven't. There hasn't been much action for almost nine years. So there's been quite a lot of criticism of the government for lack of progress in this sector. They have recognised that we've fallen behind our own path if we want to get our buildings to net zero. We're not on track to do that at the moment. So clearly something had to happen. Throwing into that as well, when we were part of the EU, there was an EU directive to review building regulations and to try and make sure buildings were what they called nearly zero energy buildings by the end of 2020, where it was cost optimal to do so, I should add. So that also required us to review our building regulations. That sort of pressure has led to government looking at this. Other things, you know, we use a very old version of what's known as the SAP methodology in support of our building regulations. And there's been quite a lot of criticism that that contains completely outdated fuel factors, particularly for electricity that's massively decarbonized in the, the 10 years since that was developed. So we've got a strange scenario where our building regulations are still sort of pushing mains gas as the, the fuel to use. Actually, other government policies trying to move away from that. So that also has required us to look at releasing a new version of Part L. Just one more thing, the performance gap. So there's this notion of a performance gap between our own assessments and what actually is built on site. And how do we ensure that what we are producing assessments for actually reflects what's being built on site? And again, because the methodology is out of date, that isn't always happening at the moment. So that was another reason why this really needed to be addressed and a new version of Part L um, developed and released. Excellent. So what are the standout key changes in the new Part L documentation or requirements? Yeah, so it's worth saying that this Part L that we're just talking about today is an interim step, and there'll be another revision known as the Future Home Standard, which is coming in 2025. Yeah. So this is just our first sort of almost halfway step to that Future Home Standard. So the big headlines really, there's a 31% average reduction in carbon emissions expected compared to Part L 2013 in this new version of Part L. So there's a more onerous standards that buildings have to meet to bring that carbon emissions level down. As expected, there is a move towards pushing electric heating in new builds, particularly heat pumps, which obviously tallies with a lot of other government policies in terms of getting onto low carbon heating. And we actually expect in 2025 for the future home standard that gas boilers will either be banned entirely or made 
so sort of unattractive in the regulations that it won't really be cost effective to build with them. So this is our first step towards that direction. We're introducing a new version of SAP known as SAP 10, which has much more up-to-date uh, carbon factors for different fuel types. So electricity, for example, has gone from being the most high carbon fuel in the methodology to now to being one of the most low carbon fuels, uh, which completely changes how the industry thinks around uh, installing electric heating. Some other things, so air tightness testing is now mandatory for all new homes. Previously, you could do sort of sample testing across larger sites. And again, to try and close that performance gap, the government decided it makes sense to make sure every single home is air tightness tested, even if it's completely identical to its next door neighbour. There's a requirement for photographs to be taken as well during the build. And those photographs will need to be recorded and supplied to the energy assessor, uh, to the build control body, and interestingly, to the homeowner as well. So there's more accountability for what's being built. And again, this is aimed at closing that performance gap and providing more information to uh, stakeholders. And one final thing, which I think has slightly flown under the radar, but I think is really important, particularly for the larger developers, is the what we call the transitional arrangements, which is how we move from one version of Part L to the next. Historically, it's been the case where if you start construction of on one plot on a site, you lock that whole site into a version of building regulations uh-huh. you know some plots on that site might not start actually being built for two three years down the line mm-hmm. and that again came under scrutiny is not really the right thing to do because we need to be getting more homes built to the the newer standards and starting to use low carbon heat for example so they've tightened that up slightly and they've now made it plot specific and what i mean by that is if you've got a site that is currently under construction come the 15th of june next year when the new regulations start any plot at that point that is not under construction has one year to start construction. And if they do not start within that year, they then have to be built to the newer part so the more onerous standards. So no longer can you lock an entire site into a version of building regulations by just starting on one plot. Each plot will be now assessed under its own individual commencement time. And the version of part used will then be determined from that. So that could be quite an important change, particularly for the larger developers. And it will probably see more homes being built to the newer standards, which can only be a good thing. Excellent. There's a few challenges that that automatically starts, you know, ringing about in my head, How you know, having been in the industry for a number of years, especially Mm. around the developer reactions. So I'm assuming based on your role and based on what you do for Elmhurst, that you get some level of exposure to the stakeholder engagement that's been undertaken with developers. What's that plane look like? We sit on various different industry groups and committees and things, yeah, and obviously the developers represented by Home Builders Federation or NHBC or Mm -hmm. whoever also generally have seats at those meetings. So it should be disseminated to them as well, um, and they should be understanding the challenges that are coming. We obviously provide lots of training courses and materials for our own members to speak with these developers on a daily basis. Yeah. So, you know, we're five months out from the implementation of this version of building regulations so we've got a little bit of time but not a lot of time i have to say for people to get to grips with it so yeah it's communication isn't it we hope and we try and do our bit we would hope that that message is getting across to developers so they understand what's coming and certainly the savvy developers will be well on top of this and they'll know what's coming because they'll try and ensure that you know their sites are ready and their designs are ready well in advance of yeah the 15th of june 
get them plots down and get them, you know, get, get them, get, get them plots yeah. in the ground. Yeah. One of the other challenges there that I've always been conscious of from a developer point of view is around the supply chain. So there's a real heavy requirement for a significant supply chain shift really around all of this. And Jonathan, I think you'd come in on this point as well from a kind of retrofit perspective as well, that in that world, in that developer and contractor world, the supply chains are very mature and they have, you know, they've developed over a number of years. You know, if you think of the likes of Taylor Wimpy or, you know, Barrett's or one of the other significant home developers, how many gas boilers do they place in homes every year, you know, year on year? So, any shift or change to that very well-established supply chain is, well, firstly, it will be unwelcomed because, you know, disruption in that sense will always cause delays and cause additional costs. We know that margins in that world, you know, have significantly diminished over the years as well. And I think, but I don't know, I, I might see this as a positive step here. The fact that you've got the Part L requirements coming as an interim step before the Better Home Standards. And if that standard does, as you say, either outright ban the use of gas or at least drive it out in one way this should start to get people to move in that right direction i guess what would be your thoughts on that jason i think what you're hitting on there really probably the largest issue is around the use of heat pumps and i know there's quite a lot of developers that are quite wary of heat pumps Mm. and they like the gas boilers as you quite rightly say you know that's been the established method of heating for years and years and years and having to suddenly shift to a heat pump and it's not just the heat pump of course it's all the infrastructure around it so the the heating circuits and the heat emitters and all of that has to be designed correctly to work with a heat pump which isn't necessarily the same as how a, a gas boiler would be designed mm-hmm. you know the government have got their aims of was it 600,000 heat pump installations a year and we're nowhere near that yet and that's yeah. a big issue how we're going to get the supply chain ready to handle that volume of heat pump installations and really that's what we've got to work towards at the moment that looks like what we're working towards for 2025 and the future home standard but there certainly will be an increase in heat pumps for for this version of part l that's coming but i still think there probably will be a quite a high proportion that will remain on gas boilers for now anyway. yeah what are your thoughts around that jonathan in terms of you know either your exposure you know from what you do around or you know your experience of new build or from a retrofit in perspective you know that supply chain challenge yeah well from the new build perspective it definitely echoes what jason's mentioned there but also relevant to retrofit part of the initiatives that are taking place at the moment and formulating in the background involve the mass installation of heat pumps for example together with installation of insulation measures within properties as part of a fabric first approach the installers active within that sector aren't immune to this either. In particular, those who are following the PAS 2035 standards are finding that part of the medium-term plan that's created by the retrofit coordinator is to have a look at the measures that will be implemented within an individual property or series of properties over a 20 or 30 year period. It's very, very difficult at the moment to predict pricing for materials over the coming months, never mind a 20 to 30 year period. It's also having an impact in terms of labour and who's available, the number of installers out there who's suitably Mm. trained, qualified and competent to be able to install the measures. And I think there's certainly a significant challenge ahead for all of us. Yeah, I think that skills and knowledge gap 
is quite a chasm really in that sense. I often get the feeling that there aren't enough advisors out there or enough accessible advice for all people to be able to make the decisions, you know, or to be able to rely on the decision they're making because it is significantly different as you as you said earlier you know we've all grown up with heating being primarily gas you know especially over the last 40 years you know whereas it's just not well it's not a sustainable way forward it's not you know it's not what we need to do we need that shift so jason just on the part l bits through what I do with Carbon Profile and what we're advising our clients around retrofit and refurbishment and stuff, we're often quoting and using aspects of Part L to say that, you know, getting it to this or close to this standard is the right sort of approach. What's your experience, your feelings around that? Are we doing the right thing there? or? Well, yeah, of course, I've talked a lot about new homes. Part L equally has standards around work on existing homes as well, so retrofit. There is some new standards in Part L 2021 that will affect existing homes. So where you're doing work on thermal elements, there's some slight tightening of U-value requirements, mainly Mm -hmm. on roofs, but only, only quite slight. So they're not huge leaps forwards. And again, it's a similar theme about where you're replacing heating systems, making sure that if they're not putting a heat pump in this time, that the heating sort of infrastructure and circuit can accept a heat pump or a low carbon heat, as they call it. So there's guidance that's going into Pyala to make sure that that infrastructure is there and ready. Should the homeowner choose to put a heat pump in in the future, they wouldn't have to rip out all of the heat emitters and pipe work and everything. It should be a much more viable option if, if that guidance is followed, really. That sounds like a really proactive step as well. It does really seem like, you know, that it feels like the intention is there, doesn't it? It feels like the intention is there for them to use this, you know, the government to be using the structure of this type of regulation to really drive through that energy shift that they want. I think that moves us on nicely. Jonathan, to have a bit more detail and a bit more of a chat with yourself around retrofit and specifically around past 2035. So I guess, you know, as we did with Jason, it would be good to really start with giving people a little bit of info as to what past 2035 is and what it does, and then we can go from there. Sure. So past 2035 is the overarching document in the retrofit standards framework. In essence, it's a set of quality standards that participants within the Trustmark government endorsed quality scheme are required to comply with whenever they're carrying out domestic retrofit work. It came about off the back of an independent review that was commissioned back in 2015 into the UK home energy efficiency and renewable energy industries. This review covered three key areas. So uh, consumer advice and protection, the standards framework itself, i.e., you know, what's going to ensure that the right products are fitted into the right properties in the right way, and also monitoring and enforcement. So what's going to be done to ensure that the quality of work is carried out effectively and what sort of arrangements will be in place for auditing and compliance checking. This review then culminated in 27 recommendations that were made back to the industry. And off the back of that, an implementation board was set up to work on developing the various action plans and timelines against those recommendations. And we at Elmhurst were heavily involved in two areas at that point in time, particularly around uh, data management and information 
which would then go on to form the basis of the uh, data warehouse that's in place at the moment, and also around measurement, monitoring and verification. Excellent. Now, obviously, I'm quite aware of the requirements and, you know, the intentions and use really around past 2035. So there's some really key roles that are defined within the process. You just talk to us a little bit about those and well, one, what they are and two, how they fit into that overall piece, I guess, because the overall desire, if you like, of having something like PASS 2035 is to give everyone a real strong standard to work to and a strong process to be able to make any retrofit programme successful. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, it is. PASS 2035 itself defined five key roles that should form part of the PASS 2035 compliance process. Many listeners would be quite obviously familiar with the retrofit installer and whoever's responsible for the design of what's going into the property as being uh, key elements of that. But a couple of uh, new roles came along. So the, the retrofit coordinator has been introduced as the overall project management role within the process. And they essentially sit there to act to protect both the interests of the clients and the, the public at large. They're responsible for overseeing the entire project from inception to completion through liaising with the building owners and other project stakeholders in order uh, to ensure effective project management. And that's the individual person who's responsible for creating the medium-term improvement plan uh, for the property. Now, a key element of that plan is based on information that's gathered by a retrofit assessor. And that's someone who's a domestic energy assessor of existing dwellings, who's then upskilled to undertake retrofit assessments in accordance with the PAS. The activities that they themselves conduct are very, very similar. They, they build on the EPC methodology in the sense that an RD SAP assessment is conducted. But in addition to that, they will also take into account the context of the building, i.e. its setting or any planning considerations or the exposure. They'll also look in a far greater detail at the condition of the property, in particular around identifying areas of concern around the potential for damp or condensation or mould. Interestingly, a major part of this is to conduct an occupancy assessment of the property, so to liaise with the people who are living within the dwelling at that point. Very often, historically, the missing link, if you like, within the process, because in the same way that no two houses are identical, no two occupants are identical. So it's absolutely important that part of that plan that's created for the property reflects the people living within the property. In addition to that, the retrofit assessor will also assess the ventilation within the property at the moment, particularly to identify if uh, any upgrade is likely to be required or to assist the coordinator in making that decision, I should say. And we'll also look at any other matters of significance around traditionally constructed or protected buildings. Something that's been highlighted from a few people that we've spoken to previously is again around resources in this particular space. What's your experience of that? Do you feel 
I guess you're you're in a prime position to see how many people are coming through and registering and being qualified, if you like, as the retrofit assessor and the retrofit coordinator. I guess a simple question would be, are there enough? That's a very good question. So the UK government's heat and building strategy when it came out, I, oh, when would that be? It was a couple of months ago now. Yeah, Doesn't time fly? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Within that, the UK government stated a requirement for around 15,000 retrofit assessors within the UK and around 10,000 retrofit coordinators. Now, placing that in context, at the moment, there are around about 15,000 domestic energy assessors in the UK. Yeah. So that would require each and every single one of them um, to upskill as a retrofit assessor to meet that predicted level of demand. Anecdotally, there are a number of domestic energy assessors who've undergone the retrofit assessor training and are lying dormant, if you like, awaiting the uh, workflows to come along where they'll mm. instantly accredit with Elmhurst and be ready to get out and conduct those assessments. The retrofit coordinator, though, given that that qualification can involve around about 150 hours of guided learning, I would highly recommend anyone interested in becoming active in this space to occupy that project management role if they haven't already done anything about it. Now is the time to act. Do you feel there's any conflict there with the existing role? I guess this is a challenging question, but I know, you know, you're an experienced person, Jonathan, so I'm sure it's not something you can't handle. <laughs> Do you think there's a conflict there with the existing role of project managers in construction projects? So, you know, if I take my own experience that I come from a large consultancy background, so, you know, I work for Capita and Arcadis and, you know, we were leading this type of change programme, if you like, it wasn't called retrofit programmes or whatever it might have been called for years and you know adequately program and project manager in it without having to have an additional accreditation or additional qualification for that so how do you see that conflict so it's a very interesting question and uh, i will add the caveat of a, a an element of diplomacy and how i answer that where you know <laughs> roughly half of the retrofit coordinators accredited through elmhurst are directly employed by installers and right. the other half are independent the question does tend to crop up very often by independent retrofit coordinators who will suggest that that's a terrific way to guarantee impartiality, whereas those on the installer side might suggest that having an in-house resource can lead to greater control over the finances and the costs of the project. But in actual fact, if you break it down to the basic levels, what this simply comes down to is what can be done to prevent conflicts of interest and it's a very very straightforward answer and that's to do with auditing mm. auditing that's conducted by us and conducted by Trustmark so we will audit an independent retrofit coordinator or directly employed in exactly the same manner to the same standards to the same frequency without any fear or favour and similarly when a retrofit coordinator lodges a plan through to the data warehouse. They have to disclose the Trustmark license numbers of all the participants in the process. And Trustmark themselves have the ability to analyze that metadata that's going in and can therefore identify any trends. But regardless, um, when it comes down to auditing, both us at Elmhurst and Trustmark are ever vigilant. We're always watching. <laughs> and uh, we can identify where there may be issues that are worth further exploration. 
Excellent. Very diplomatic in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. So where is past 2035 most in play? Is it in, I'm assuming it's in the, the kind of social housing transformation type world. And if it's not at the moment extended massively into the private rented sector, do you see that as being one, an opportunity into something that should be happening? Yeah, well, to that second point, I would uh, suggest that's inevitable. I mean, certainly up here in Scotland, the Scottish government within the heat in building strategy suggested or stated that PAS 2035 will be adopted into all future delivery programmes. At the moment, in terms of uh, UK-wide, since the 1st of July last year, PAS 2035 has been introduced into any eco funded works as a mandatory requirement for any improvements undertaken by Trustmark registered businesses in that space. And that means that, you know, all eco-funded retrofit projects must be overseen by a Trustmark accredited retrofit coordinator who will work with the other professionals in the projects such as the assessor and the installer. So something that's always important in the world generally, but especially I find in this space is innovation and technology. And one of the things that I find reassuring working in the industry is around the way some of the regulation is designed and the way that it facilitates future change. For example, Jason, Allen, you were talking about you know, what might not work today might work in four or five years time because, you know, technological advances are such that technology becomes more accessible, cheaper and thus more usable, you know, and more user friendly. And that, you know, that's the hope, isn't it? And the desire with all of this around making all of that more accessible to everybody. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges with the domestic market is you've got around 25 million domestic homes in the UK. And out of those, I think it's just over 4 million that are in the social sector. So those are the ones that are going to get some assistance programs, if you like. You know, they'll be able to access funding. They'll be able to do whatever. And, you know, there is a social drive and a social desire for those types of organisations and local authorities to drive those change programs for their tenants, you know, for the life of their tenants. And then we move into the private rented sector that, you know, you've got aspects of things where it's backed by institutional investors who have strong ESG credentials, those of that investment and that change is going to come and it's going to be driven from those. But there's probably around 50% or maybe a little bit less of the domestic market that is even the rented sector, sorry, where, you know, what's the incentive for the landlord to make those changes? And then if you think about our own homes, what's our incentive to do it? Because, you know, if if I installed heat bumps today in my own home and made that transition, obviously, you know, it's a big consideration and something that, you know, I want to drive towards doing. But the justification for doing so at the moment, it doesn't really exist, you know, unless you are just thinking we all need to club together to spend all our money to, you know, drive this agenda together. The payback periods are 30, 40 years at the moment. So what do we do about that? Jason, I'll go to you first on that. Yeah, you've hit on a good point there about the, again, the transition towards heat pumps. At the moment, there's a number of factors that would disincentivize you switching to a heat pump like you've just said so cost is obviously what most people get you know at the end of the day if it comes out of your back pocket that's what most people are probably concerned with mm. and at the moment a heat pump is vastly more well maybe not vastly is the right word but it's more expensive than the gas boiler obviously yeah. your fuel bills 
could go up perhaps because cost of electricity is so much higher than gas at the moment, mm-hmm. despite all of the recent volatility in the energy prices. And if you're looking at your EPC, well, your EPC will probably get worse at the moment because it's EPC is, is in the domestic sector. It's based on cost and cost of electricity, as I just said, is higher than gas. So there's a number of factors that the government are aware of. I think if they want to incentivize people to switch to heat pumps, the EPC format, and Elmer's a campaign for a long time, that the EPC format needs to be shifted, not necessarily to forget about cost, but also mm. to express the other metrics in an equal manner. Um, so your headline rating of your EPC isn't just solely focused on cost. We, we see it like a food labeling scheme. You've got three or four or however many different metrics, all equally prominent, equally rated, and then the homeowner, the tenant, whoever can choose the stakeholder can choose which ones they think is important to them. Mm. And then there should be mechanisms at play to show how they can make improvements for each particular metric. So if we take our heat pump, for example, if you look at your carbon emissions, your heat pump is going to be probably fantastic for your carbon emissions, you know, because you're moving to a low carbon fuel. As I said, your headline EPC rating based on cost is likely to get worse. I believe there's going to be consultations coming out at some point in 2022 looking at sort of shifting the green levies uh, over from electricity to gas or trying to level the playing field up a little bit to make it a little bit more favourable to switch to a heat pump. Obviously, we've got the border replacement scheme coming in April, which you get £5,000, is it, for replacement of your boiler for a heat yeah. pump? Although, you know, they estimate that's only going to be, what, 30,000 heat pump installations, something yeah. like that. So it's, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg, really, but it's a start. So, yeah, I think there's work to be done there. I don't particularly have the answer, but I think the government do recognise there's work to be done. How do you incentivise the private rented sector or homeowners to make that switch? And that's mm. it's a real challenge. What's yeah. your thoughts on that, Jonathan? Would you concur? Yes, absolutely. It's uh, very easy with a carrot and stick approach, isn't it, to see where governments are the very ones who implement various minimum energy efficiency standards that must be met before a property can be rented out or sold or constructed, but without any support coming along to assist people in funding that, then it's uh, it's quite a hard task for many, many people to look at that. I think, though, it's very easy to lay responsibility for that at the doorstep of the government, you know, given that they're the ones who are setting the standards. But as you mentioned, the the opportunity for investment from the private sector is enormous, not just along the lines of some of the steps we've seen from high street lenders through some of the innovative mortgage products that have come along in recent months, but also from some of those institutional investors and pension funds and investment trusts, etc. But one thing's for sure, no matter what combination of mechanisms come along, Elmhurst member firms will continue to dominate the landscape with the advice that they're providing in this sector. Nice little plug there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are one of them, so (laughs) I'm sure you'll get your share. (laughs) We are indeed. So one of the things when I talk about innovation and technology is like, you know, people get hung up on technology being some new fancy bit of digital equipment that we can all use. But I think we often forget that the innovation covers many things. It covers our knowledge, our process, you know, all of those bits that go behind it. I think the SAP methodology and, you know, how that can be applied to this whole agenda is, is a really important part, especially as you mentioned, you know, it is being, you know, redone. So again, yeah. 
that's innovation in itself. The fact that, you know, that type of modeling is moving with the times. I mean, alongside that, I think it also makes things more accessible. I mentioned earlier that I think some of the challenge with people's opinion or people's desire to make the shift is again around knowledge around it. You know, like the, we're not told enough about the influence that it can make and how our own decisions can make a significant impact on that journey to net zero 2050 and how important it is to all of us. You know, I don't think we know enough about it or it's purported in a negative way rather than it being part of our sort of daily agenda. You know, I think, well, I guess the the younger generation I find are a, a tad more switched on to it. I know my experience with my own children with my lad going to university and part of that choice was around the green credentials of the university he was going to, you know, that. So it is coming through more and more. But what other process or even, you know, technology, digital solutions do you feel are going to help to drive this? Jonathan, if we could go to you first. Yeah, well, data management is a critical part of this in in the same way that we all know the old adage, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. We know that the significance of how The owner of the building or the person responsible for the building can analyze the data of the energy efficiency, the thermal efficiency, how much it's costing, the comfort levels within the building, and how that can influence what sort of plan they're going to put together for uh, premises is so critical that our job at Elmhurst is very much to empower member firms with the tools that they need to then offer that service out in their respective marketplaces. We've seen quite a shift recently, particularly among retrofit coordinators who have been upskilling themselves to become more conversant with a lot of the considerations around building physics and then how that data can be transferred over to the owners and asset managers to help inform decisions over the plans that are being created. And I think the the opportunity is we move more towards the digital uh, conglomeration of information about the housing stock that we have in the UK can only represent a good thing to help inform those same government policies that we're clamouring for, guidance on, and most importantly, funding on. What about yourself, Jason? Yeah, I think I'd echo Jonathan's sentiments, really. In terms of sort of educating the the public and empowering them from our perspective, one of the most significant events in that has been the move of the EPC to a digital certificate. And, and the reason that's important is because it's so much easier for them to then link it to new initiatives or funding, as Jonathan said. You know, somebody can go on and look at their EPC and have the most up-to-date links to schemes. You know, whether it's a retrofit scheme or border replacement scheme, the EPC should really be used as a driver to empower people to understand their property and then know and not only understand it, but know how to improve it as well. Mm. And there should be really clear information. You know, you can go over here to find out how you can improve your heating or you can go over here to find out how you can improve your insulation. I don't think the EPC quite does that yet. But as I said, the beauty of it being online now or digital is it can be much more easily updated and much more interactive let's say and improved much more quickly to address these types of issues yeah it's a really good point the data as well you know like we're the same in that context that we feel that that's the key to the whole way forward or the key to unlock the way forward really at the moment you know that's what we're starting with with all of our clients at the moment it's what do you know you know and and also we want to try and future proof some of this to our clients because some of the fears we get from people when you're talking about you know 
you need a baseline to start from. You need a point to be able to say, where do we start to be able to make changes from? So the EPC, whilst it's not a perfect regime and, you know, it has its challenges, it provides you with a baseline. It provides you with a snapshot, a moment in time and a moment of truth comparable to everything else that's out there yeah. because it uses the same model, which I really like from that point. And then building from there is the right way to do it, right? So we're helping our clients to look at every component part and all of the constituent aspects that go into those models that you can influence and you can change. So, you know, the removal of any default requirements and getting stripping buildings back if required, you know, digging holes in walls to find out what they're made of so we can get accurate u values all of these types of measures to be able to get to a point of absolute accuracy and one of the reasons why we want to do that as well is because we know the software develops and changes as it goes forward so whilst we don't think the changes are going to be as significant as they have been over the last 10 years what we don't want to do is advise our clients to spend a load of money now retrofitting stuff that you know then in 10 years time it, it still gives them an epcd you know because yeah. the models moved on that far so what would be your advice around that jason with your experience especially around the sap modeling and stuff uh, you know that type of approach is that the right way to be approaching this to clients and can we future proof ourselves uh, i think you can to a degree when governments get in play you never quite know what can happen and things can change pretty quickly as we for anyone in this industry in the last 10 years or so will know, you know things do change sometimes seemingly overnight which uh, again doesn't help doesn't help us plan and future proof and get towards our goals i think certainly in the new build side of things as i said there does seem to be a clear path now at least to 2025 with where mm -hmm. we're going we're building regulations and, and epc is kind of linked to that really there seems to be a clear path around what the government sees their preferred method of heating. I'm not going to go into the hydrogen versus heat pump debate because I'm just going to steer well away from that. <laughs> really, there's a debate to be had. And <clears throat> aren't going to decide on hydrogen until 2026, I think they've said. Yeah, that's on know. the timeline, yeah. So that's a long way off. So really, at the moment, in their opinion, the only viable option for heating is heat pumps. So, you know, common sense would say at the moment, if you put a heat pump in, you're likely to be future-proofed against these future minimum epc ratings and mm. that seems to be the way that government are pushing things but as, as i said things can change and you can never they be 100 sure no. which doesn't always help um, but that certainly looks to be the way things are going in the next five to ten years at least so the same question to yourself, Jonathan, but slightly differently framed from a kind of retrofit perspective and your, and your experience in that space, that you could get a huge social housing programme that's managed now and gets everything to a standard that costs, let's say, you know, £300,000 of public money to do so. And then in five years' time, because of a shift in the model, it's now going to cost another 200, 300,000 to meet the next standard and the next standard, you know, like, so do you have a fear around that? Or do you think that's one of the kind of negative press aspects, if you like, around this? Yeah, I would agree that's possibly a bit pessimistic, a pessimistic outlook. We have uh, legislative guidance around minimum energy efficiency standards within social housing, for example, where currently it will say, for example, up here, EPC band B by 2032. Mm. So for properties to have uh, reached that level and quite obviously many social housing providers are taking massive steps towards achieving that. We see similar within the private rented sector and then ultimately towards the owner occupied. The only way that that could theoretically change would be if a different metric was used. Jason mentioned earlier about Elmhurst's long 
advocating for the introduction of an additional metric in TPCs. Interestingly, that was recently consulted on by the Scottish Government um, to introduce a, a metric detailing energy use within the property in addition to cost and carbon, as you have at the moment. So unless there's some seismic shift in government policy where they stop using EPC bans as the metric or for the targets to be achieved and introduce it based on some other metric, then who knows? Who knows for sure what might happen? Well, thank you very much, guys. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think that's plenty of content for people to consider around, you know, a topic that we could sit here and discuss for, for hours and hours on end because it isn't without challenge. And one of the hopes I have is that we can revisit these podcasts in a year's time with the same guests. And, you know, we're having a great conversation about how the world's club together and we've all managed to move things forward. Just before we leave, Jason, I'll start with you. A question I always like to ask our guests is if you had the opportunity to have lunch with Boris Johnson tomorrow and you could put some sphere of influence into his mind around the direction of travel the government should be taking, what would you be trying to get him to listen to? I think one thing that we've pushed for for a long time is don't leave it nine years until the next building regulations change. <laughs> Invest in the energy rating methodology so they are updated regularly because, again, they haven't been necessarily so make sure they are constantly updated and reflect policies technologies latest information all of that but more importantly set out a clear plan and set out a clear roadmap so the industry knows and i don't mean just up to 2025 i mean for the next 10 15 20 years set out a clear road path and stick to it so we know exactly what we've got to aim for and a longer term ambition rather than you know, this short-termism that we've had in the past of chopping and changing and cancelling mm. things and shifting things because uh, that just doesn't help anyone. So, yeah, really set out a long-term vision, um, detail what that is, stick to it, I think would be our Elmhurst suggestion or certainly my suggestion anyway. That's excellent. Thank you. What about yourself, Jonathan? What would be your sphere of influence coming out of that lunch? <laughs> that would be a very interesting lunch. <laughs> I would ask him oh that's a good question to cast his mind back to about 14 years or so ago when we were in the midst of the financial crisis and at that point the government seemed perfectly capable to put their hands into their pockets and bail out various banks to enormous sums of money we're in a worse crisis nowadays the piecemeal approach this 600,000 heat pumps here and £5,000 there, it's not enough. It's not enough. This needs a massive investment, whether that's coming from central government through part of a longer-term post-COVID recovery or alternatively working in partnership with institutional investors who have money at their disposal that could be used to fund in the long term. What we ultimately need is a national retrofit strategy where significant levels of investment beyond anything that we could probably imagine on this podcast here today are there, are readily available and can be drawn down by homeowners, landlords, social landlords and anyone else involved within this space. That would be my wish. Really good points. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us and thanks for listening, everybody. We hope to see you next time on Carbon Times.